Um, and uh, um, if, if you would you like to make a, um, I mean, just a you know a brief introduction in Carlos so that um, Lewis knows with whom he is speaking. Evening. It's such a huge pleasure. It's evening where I am. I'm guessing it's afternoon where you all are. Um, it's very huge. It's a pleasure to meet you, um, Patrick. Well, it's impressive that I can finally meet you. Patrick talks about you all of the time since the last spring that we've known him. And we're so he shares the profound wisdom that you share with him. So I'm just lucky to meet you. My name is Ibukun. Um, as Patrick has mentioned, I'm in Nigeria. I am Nigerian. And um, I, hmm, I mean, I, I, on this program, I'm thinking, could you know all that? I'm thinking of looking at, um, before now, I was interested actually, I think I should share that, um, in looking at um, the, how the, well, the indigenous peoples of Canada has had a tough time with the child, that, and that's what's in mildly actually, with the child protective systems and how there is a representation of indigenous children. But I came into that because of the research I was doing at the time, oh, which I'm still doing, I've reverted to, which is on Nigerian children and how in spite of the laws, the policies and institutions that we have, Nigerian children are still suffering lots of ills and harm. So I was trying to find a comparative, a system to compare with, where, and well, well, naturally, I, I turned to North America, given or the global North, thinking like that's that's well the gold standard, so to speak, on a lot of issues. So I was I was a bit um, I was taken aback when I saw that all as in as um, as um, well 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 as it seems when I began to saw issues as representation, issues as systemic um, injustice perpetrated against, um, I think BIPOC in, in, in general. So, so but, 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 I, but, but because of, I, I, I found it, it was very difficult for me to reconcile my social location with um, issues of cultural appreciation and cultural sensitivity, as well as to be sure that I wasn't going to be appropriating learnings and facts that were not supposed to be within my knowledge in the very first places of places. So I've now turned back to, as my people say, charity begins at home. So I've turned my gaze back onto my home country to see how we can right the wrongs there. So it's, I've been talking for quite a bit now and I'll be quiet. It's very, I'm very glad. I feel privileged to meet you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. I understand that in, at some point, Nigeria will surpass China as having the most people in the world. At least this is what I read. Do you think that's true? Uh, I don't know what to say to that, but well, China has a very huge population, but then Nigeria is also a very populous country. So I haven't read that. I. I don't know if that's true, but is it possible? Perhaps. <laughs> so. 
My turn. Your turn. <laughs> Hi. Uh, it, should we address you as Lewis or Dr. No, no, Lewis is fine. Lewis is fine. Okay, Lewis. Well, uh, echoing uh, my colleague, it's such a, a pleasure to meet you. Uh, Patrick has told, you know, talks of you so highly uh, throughout our, uh, our cohort. Uh, so it's exciting to meet you. Uh, so I'm coming to you today from uh, the, well, it's in the basement, but anyways, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the basement of um, Treaty 2 uh, territory here, smack dab in the uh, south central uh, area of Manitoba. So just Brandon, uh, Manitoba, um, homelands of the uh, Dakota, Cree, Oji Cree, Anishinaabe, and Métis uh, peoples. Um, fun fact, uh, and I don't need to tell you this, that our Dakota nations here didn't sign the treaty. So that's a, a fun fact. Uh, I always like to tell my Dakota colleagues that they're, uh, you know, these badass rebels that uh, just wouldn't um, succumb to colonization. So anyways, um, that's where I'm at. Um, so my research interest in the program is looking at sexualized violence policies on campuses. Um, so prior, well, and even still right now, uh, I was the uh, sexual violence coordinator for our university. I'm in a teaching position now. I just landed my first tenure track in psychiatric nursing. Um, so this course has been really uh, inspirational for me for my teaching. Um, so, you know, my history of practice as a, you know, I was in private practice for quite a long time. Uh, as well as teaching, has always been uh, to try to uh, do a, a feminist decolonizing, um, you know, non-oppressive sort of lens uh, to echo what uh, Ibuku has already talked about, uh, always, you know, as a non-Indigenous person, when looking at decolonizing work, always being uh, so hesitant that I'm appropriating. I'm actually very paranoid about it. So, um, and just, you know, I've had the circumstances teaching where I was brought into an Indigenous program to teach as the Western therapist, uh, which taught me a lot. Um, but it wasn't, I, I knew that there was a time that I needed to go, uh, that that wasn't appropriate for me uh, to be there. So anyways, long story short, that gives you, I guess, a, a little snapshot of who you're talking to today. So again, uh, just, it's just wonderful to have this opportunity and thank you for being here. Oh, you're welcome. And, um, you know, I, I think that what we're, that it's a kind of, um, Uh, I don't know. I, I struggle with the words because in some of the writings they talk about Eurocentric settler plantation colonization. And yet um, something very similar happened in China 
I think. So, so it's hard to know. It, it strikes me that colonization is more of a global movement than one that's limited to Europe um, because the Chinese do it too. And um, I don't really know what happens in India, but I suspect that it's going on there too if we look at relationships with indigenous people in India. Um, so it's sort of a global thing. And, and I suspect that it has a lot to do with the rich getting richer. And, um, and so I was thinking that, that if we oppose the rich getting richer, it's, it's never appropriation. <laughs> it's just figuring out our place in, in the opposition to, to the global accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few. And I don't know if you guys saw the Oxfam report for this year, but um, last year, the wealthiest 1% um, accumulated more wealth than any year before in history, their history. And the gap between the, the rich and the poor grew more than any other year in history. And, um, you know, and the, uh, the Oxfam people were talking about how, how the rich responded to COVID by getting richer and, and pushing more people into poverty. And, and I suspect that, that's global. You know, it's not limited to indigenous communities in Manitoba or in Nigeria or the, or the United States. It's, it's something that's happening everywhere. And um, I, you know, Patrick and I were talking before about um, how, how do we develop alternatives to conventional psychiatry when conventional psychiatry generates so much profit? When, um, when, giving people drugs and not talking to them for very long is, you know, highly efficacious for profit, <laughs> you know, and it really is the, the European Caribbean plantation model for economic growth, you know, that, that uh, we just, we're just, instead of cutting sugar cane, we're handing out pills and we're trying to hand out as many pills as we can hand out in an hour. And um, we're considered replaceable. I mean, you know, any pill pusher is as good as any other pill pusher because um, we're given an algorithm, you know, for how to make a diagnosis and which pills fit that diagnosis. And, by George, you know, follow the algorithm, push your pills, make the profit. Um, and, uh, you know, how, how, how do we 
undo that when um, you know it's making so many people wealthy and and I don't know about I don't know how it is in Canada but in the United States for the most part we don't really seem to care about patient outcomes except for a couple things. Medicare here cares that about their hemoglobin A1C, their blood pressure, whether you've screened them for depression or not, though it doesn't seem to care about their depression, just whether or not you've screened them for it. <laughs> and, and have you screened them for fear of falling? That's on the list. Did, did I miss any? I think there's seven, Patrick. Seven things that Medicare worries about. Yeah, I don't. Even, I don't remember that list anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when I had my annual visit with my PCP. The the um, person putting me into the room said, "Are you afraid of falling?" I said. Come on, it's Maine. It's the winter time. Of course, I'm afraid of falling. <laughs> Although I have to tell you a story about Brandon, Manitoba. So once upon a time, I was in a hotel lobby in Brandon, Manitoba, and the snow was just whipping outside. It was just coming down in, in droves. It was just sheets and sheets of snow. And, and a guy walks in in shorts and a T-shirt, you know, and he says, well, I guess winter will be here pretty soon. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah. Yes, that's my memory of Brandon, Man Manitoba. So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, if, if we're talking and writing about decolonization. You know, that's the challenge. Um, um, I suspect it has to be approached differently in each country because every country is different. Um, you know, and in, in, I work for uh, Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, which is, serves the five indigenous nations of Maine. And our CEO is trying to decolonize by getting grants, by not being dependent on government funding for healthcare. And um, so far, so good. Is that sustainable? I don't know. Time will tell. Um, she says, you know, government funding is like scholarships, you know, doesn't necessarily cover all the costs. So, so, you know, it, it's inspiring to hear her say that. Um, will it work? And, and beyond that, you know, um, most of our clients have been socialized to the conventional psychiatric system. And so they're looking for the pill that'll either make them not feel at all um, or make them feel perfect. <laughs> you know, which which I suspect is high dose benzodiazepines. 
my uh, another funny story you know my my wife had her annual screening colonoscopy and they gave her a benzodiazepine midazolam and and afterwards she said you better not give me that again that was too wonderful <laughs> she said it was the first time in my life when i had no worries <laughs> she said i shouldn't have that ever <laughs> which is probably good insight into, you know, her relationship to drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I probably rattled my mouth enough. What do you guys think? I was just writing notes as you were talking and sort of pulling out ideas. I find that um, you're able to say things, you know, we're just being introduced to some of these, uh, like before I came into this class, I never heard of math studies, to be quite honest with you. And now it's op opened up this whole um, other way of looking at things, although I, you know, I'm in the process of sort of uh, making comparisons to you know, the feminist sort of discourse and, you know, how I look through things with a feminist, you know, lens and gender and, uh, and how we can apply, but it all, you know, the higher you go to look at these issues, the more it just points to colonization and Western, but even, you know, you said something that really struck me. And that is that in the East, you're saying China does the same thing. And that's the first time I've ever heard of that. So you've really got me thinking. So I've been just writing notes and uh, thinking about, um, you know, some of the things you said. Yeah, and I, I think, I think we, we probably have to be careful not to villainize Europe too much, given that the Chinese are doing it as well. You know, um, look at how China deals with Tibet or um, indigenous people within its borders. Um, you know, minorities, they're not very friendly to Chinese. And, and um, I, I think, I, I mean, Patrick, you may know more about this than I do, but I think China is, is basically a capitalist country with um, one company called the Communist Party having somewhat unfair advantage over everyone else. But yeah. yeah, but it but it's operating as a capitalist economy. You know, when I talk to people who've been to China, it's like everybody's got a hustle. Yeah. You know, everyone's trying to make more money than their neighbor. And, you know, sell more widgets, make more widgets. Um and it's not, you know, friends of mine who've gone to China say it, it if you hear about Asia being collectivist, China isn't. I mean, collectivist in the sense that the Communist Party wins. And if you're high enough in the party, you get to feed off everyone else, um, which is not exactly collectivist. To yeah. me, it's more, um, of an oligarchy, you yeah. know, um, sort of like 
the Russian oligarchs, but but state sanctions. And so, so um, I I suspect the problem is is that capitalism is so successful in in doing what it does that you know in in concentrating wealth into the hands of the few, you know, who control the means of production, and and um, you know, sort of preventing the rest of us from getting access to that wealth and forcing us to work for them in order to survive. And um, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how one exits that. I don't know how to get, I don't know how to get around that, you know. Um, and um, I don't know. It's probably I don't read enough political economy, <laughs> but, but I haven't seen anyone get around it. Like I haven't seen a country um, finding a better solution. And maybe someone has. I mean, I've seen happier countries. You know, there's the happy country index and um, the Scandinavian countries are always in the top five. And um, the Netherlands is usually ranked high. Um, South Sudan is usually at the bottom of the, of the happiness index. It must be miserable to live in South Sudan. I've, I've, I've only, I read a book about it once called What the What, or What is the What? And it was about um, walking a, a, a refugee to be, his village was destroyed and he walked across South Sudan to get out of the country. And uh, it was a moving book, but it was very sad. Um, so, so yeah, go ahead. No, no, well, I, I mean, I'm just thinking about like, I mean, the charge for this paper, um, the thing that, um, you know, Bren LaFrancois wants, wants us to do is to, as doctoral students is to exactly, you know, get at your point. Like, this is this difficult thing about like, what is this something else? Um, and, and I don't know, but like part of the reason why I thought about you, you know, in terms of this, the conversations we've had about decolonization, isn't just that idea about decolonization, but the whole notion about, you know, what you're trying to do with the urban Indian clinic um, and like to provide public health services sort of around the state, if you will, to the um, nations that are here in Maine. Um, and then, you know, also your work in Australia in the outback and your work um, and, you know, even just making talking circles in Saskatchewan. Um, like, I think that those are examples of things that communities ha are doing, have done, have taken up. Um, so if we organize this article, I don't know, like, um, I don't know if you were able to read um, the things that we read, that we sent to you earlier, but um, 
like I, I'm sort of looking to you to think, okay, if we propose a few of these things, um, how might we structure an article to propose some answers to Brenda's, I think, central question? Um, well, I, I think it's helpful to look at communities that have succeeded at, at um, some important task. One of the famous communities is Alkali Lake in British Columbia. And they were able to turn around alcoholism in their community. And uh, there's another community, I believe it's in Manitoba, which was able to turn around child sexual abuse. And they made a beautiful video about their work. Hollow water. Yes, hollow water. Yeah, yeah. And, and there was a, uh, an incredible movie made about a Inuit community which was able to um, stand its own against the Canadian justice system um, in, um, it was um, something Bay, I'll, I'll think of the movie in a moment, but Fortitude Bay, a uh, trial at Fortitude Bay. And so the community, there had been a, a, a rape and it took the Crown prosecutor over a year to get up to the community to even arrest the person. And in the meantime, the community had implemented its own justice and, and had um, made, the perpetrator uh, hunt for the family for some period of time, more than a year, and, and make reparations. And by the time the Crown prosecutor came to arrest and try the young man, the community was up in arms because they were already done with it. He'd already made his reparations and everyone was satisfied. And the argument was, if you put him in jail and send him down south, he'll be dead to us. You know, he's, he's, we've done the work of, of repair and now you want to destroy him? For what point? To what end? Mm. And, and it's a beautiful movie. Um, and, and I, I think that, that if we look at communities that are doing something, you know, I mean, um, here in Maine, um, our CEO, Lisa Sakabason, gives a marvelous talk about, which I can send you guys, um, about all the efforts going on in communities around Maine to decolonize. And I was thinking of, I don't know if you guys know Teresa March, who's a, um, works in Northern Ontario. Um, I'm trying to think of which community, but she's written some books. She's actually from Africa and, uh, and moved to Northern Ontario. What a wow. <laughs> <laughs> Brave woman. Oh uh, yes, right. <laughs> yeah, is there anywhere cold in Africa? I don't think so. Maybe South Africa has one place that's chilly. I don't know. Or the, or the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, that might be chilly. 
<laughs> but um, anyway, she's written papers and books about the the excellent work they're doing with substance abuse in in Northern Ontario, and um, also at Eskasoni First Nation in um, Nova Scotia. Um, they're doing some amazing work with youth and and decolonizing mental health. So so people are doing stuff, and I I think it's useful to 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 draw to look at how did they do it. I mean that's yeah. what always interests me is how did they do it? And here in Maine, I mean Wabanaki is doing it because. Lisa Sakabasin is raising the money to do it. She's finding the money to hire people to do this work and empowering them, you know, to do the work. And so the work consists of um, the language initiative, bringing language back into communities, uh, the food initiative, um, helping communities to grow their own food and funding a food truck that takes food around to people who are insecure, that's grown on Wabanaki territory. Um, and there's youth programs, you know, culture enrichment programs. It, the list is more than I can even remember because I mostly work in the clinical and the crisis response end. Uh, and clinical services. Um, and Lisa told me this week that I get to see the people that they haven't reached. So I said, oh, lucky me. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, I, I guess these are, you know, these are a bunch of heroic stories. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and ins inspirational stories. And um, it reminds me of Thomas Merton who said, um, do the right thing, even if you're sure that it's not gonna work. And, and that's, you know, people are out there doing the right thing in the face of uncertainty regarding success. And maybe that's just what we have to do. And, Lisa invites everyone to come visit her. Hopefully, if you visit her, she'll tell you how she gets all these grants, because <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but um, she's always telling people to come visit us. I always like to tell people that we're conveniently located on the road to Fredericton. <laughs> <laughs> and, and most people in the United States say, where? What? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm reminded of like, you know, I've been doing those accreditation reviews for like, I don't even know, 20 years now, 25 years. And there have been three programs in the history of visiting programs that I've ever been really impressed by. One was Green Chimneys that believed that how a community treats animals reflects how it treats children. So it takes abused animals and children at its, at its farm in, um, upstate New York. The second was the Pacific Legal Education Association, which treats when 100% of kids 
a lot of them, indig- uh, First Nations kids in Canada, who often make the news, like kids who committed murders and heinous sex crimes and all that sort of stuff, and treats 100% of them in foster um, treatment, foster care situations. Um, and the third was a program in Hawaii that did the same thing, that um, wrapped around professional services and believed that kids should grow up in families. And, um, and they took it not only the kids, this is the Hawaii program, took it not only the kids, but, but their parents, um, which I thought was remarkable. Um, So, I mean, if we, like, maybe our job from the class is to sort of, you know, address the, as we say in social working, the problematization, oh my God, of um, all of these uh, issues. And I hope that we started to do that in what we sent you. And then, um, you know, maybe you could be somebody who helps us then talk about all of these programs of hope and promise that provide other alternative ways for communities, um, you know, to respond to people who are struggling with distress. Um, and maybe that's how we take the tack of this um, paper. That makes sense. You know, I, I think um, since we don't, since we don't know how to overthrow capitalism yet, um, <laughs> Maybe we focus on places where good, where they've succeeded at something of value and beauty. You know, like I mean, these communities that we've just named. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure there's more that we don't know about. So, Do you know about the search institute? Well, I mean, I, I hate this. I'm doing my Augusta. <laughs> the search institute in, in Minneapolis did this amazing job about ass, they call them asset community asset building. So, you know, like kids who have more than one adult friend outside of their family tend, even if they have a significant, uh, like a high ACE score, they tend to do better than kids who don't have, um, you know, outside adult uh, connections or friendships. Um, and there, and in Washington state, they used ACE scores as a way to sort of address people's distress outside of psychiatry on a county by county basis. And they reduced the number of kids in like juvenile detention and juvenile delinquency and the number of kids who like miss school days. And I mean, there were a number of indicators like that, but, um, I mean, I, I, I can, I know a bit about those and I could gather some things to write about them. I I feel like this is in the right ballpark, at least. Um, And I don't know, like, if we're going to brainstorm this article, is there anything that should or should not be in it? Or, and I don't know if you had time to give any reactions to the, at least framing that um, we started with. No, I, 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 I thought that the, that the framing was good. And I was looking forward to this conversation to figure out where to, where it was going to, going to go. And I think what we're talking about is a good direction. That, um, you know, to, to name the problem, I mean, to analyze the problem, and then to, to say, well, so who's, who's doing wonderful things in relation to these problems? And you, and you know, it comes down to indigenous values, really, 
which which are inclusivity, um, focusing on community and not the individual. Um, sort of Michael White's idea that the problem is the problem, not the person being the problem. Um, and um, giving people a way to save face, to avoid shame and blame. And by, I, I think um, one of the ways that we do that is, is through using the threat power meaning network or framework. Um, you know, we, we, I know someone um, who was uh, terribly sexually abused at age 12. I mean, so badly that she had to have a hysterectomy. And she still blames herself for not having found a way to fight back, escape, um, you know, resist. And I'm like, you know, I, I, I focus on you were 12, you know, you were a child. This was a big, strong adult. You know, power was not with you. Power was with him. And the threat was immense. You know, you thought he was going to kill you. And he almost did. Um, and, um, you know, our, our task is to see what, what is, to, is to understand that children need to be protected and, and no one protected you. And that's not your fault. You know, that's not a failing on your part. It's a failing on the part of the whole community that this happened. And, and now our job is, is to, make, to make meaning of it, to, to look at, at what it's inspired you to do with your life because she, she has done some wonderful things with her life in response to this and to celebrate that instead of um, continually um, criticizing yourself, your, your younger self, for not having any power, which wasn't your fault. You know, so, um, so I like the power threat meaning framework in that respect, that, it, that it's a, a framework that allows us to, to really understand what happens to powerless people at the hands of the powerful and, and to understand that our task is, is to find some meaning in it, you know? And, and I think that's what these communities that we've been talking about have managed to do, that they've managed to turn their, you know, the, the colonization, colonizing disempowerment that they've experienced into something empowering that makes them proud, that gives yeah. them meaning and, and purpose. Yeah, I love that. Um, so, I mean, so just to, we have about 20 minutes or so, um, a little bit less because we have to, there's a, we have to go to the piling book that I reviewed with you earlier, Lewis. There's a book, um, online book hoo-ha 
that it turns out our professor is presenting yet. So she invited us on Friday. <laughs> um, but so, I mean, steps forward. Um, I mean, I, I propose that we sort of take the notes that we have from today, um, you know, keep working on our draft, try to pull together now. Um, uh, uh, Abukun, Carla, and my sort of version of it and then try to add in the hopeful things. I mean, you gave us a lot of references and we probably know others too. And then we pick a handful of those and then write about, um, uh, I like that whole construct about making meaning. Um, uh, oh my God, who's the guy who wrote about um, Noonday? Andrew Solomon says that ours is to, um, you know, take experience and then make meaning and from that to forge an identity. Um, and I, I love I love what you're describing. And I think if we, in the article sort of, you know, we'll put down all of the problems and then we can talk together about solutions and, um, and then pass the article around and polish it up and, um, and hopefully get it published. Sounds good to me. It's certainly been a fun discussion. Yeah, yeah. Do you, so Carla and uh, Abukun, um, any, any thoughts or questions?